0: A Japanese on with a
1: an Hello and welcome a to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week, we return to Rillier Roulette.
0: But it's not Rillier really Roulette as you know it, listeners. This
2: time... It has a twist.
1: Indeed. More M's than you can shake a stick at. It's
2: monster madness. But before we get stuck into all that,
0: what exactly is happening?
1: Well, it's not long now before we board a plane for Providence and Necronomicon. Yeah, this is moving far, far
0: too quickly. It's like looking at an oncoming train at the moment. I thought I was prepared, but I'm
2: really, really not. I was going to say oncoming Shoggoth, so we're close enough between the two of us.
0: (laughs) Yes.
1: We are appearing in a bunch of seminars, uh, various ones that we mentioned in the previous episode, and you can find those on the website. Please come along and say hi if you're going to be at
0: Necronomicon also. And as well as the seminars, uh, we will be doing a book signing on the Saturday as well on the Chaosium stand uh, between 3 to
2: 4pm. And between uh, between all of us, we're running some games.
1: <laughs> yes, indeed. I'm <laughs> running one and you're, you're running three, I think, Matt. Yes. ever the map machine. Yeah, glutton for punishment, what can I say?
0: Yeah, whereas I'm saving all my energy for seminars and just generally geeking out.
1: So you're saving all of your energy for sitting in a chair and listening? Yeah, yeah. So oh, and I, you're going to be talking sometimes as well, right? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. So, so, so all
0: in all, I'm playing to my strengths. Sitting around, listening and
1: talking. Yeah, I can do these things. That pretty much describes GMing. And at the end of our trip, we have a couple of nights in New York. So on Monday the 21st... We're going to be in New York City. We've got a few things that we want to go and see, but, you know, if there are any listeners that want to meet up for a drink in a cafe or something in New York, then drop us a message and maybe we can organise something. While we're there at Necronomicon, each day we'll be trying to upload to the website with fresh information and a live blog and possibly even some recordings made on site um, to give you, the listeners at home, uh, an insight into the experience of going to Necronomicon.
0: Yes, we've thought about a few questions we want to go around and ask some of the other attendees and guests there. So if you are at Necronomicon and you see you know a strange person come up with a recording device and looking
1: furtive, it may be one of us. Or it may just be the CIA. So keep an eye on com. And one last minute
0: update. As we mentioned, we will be in New York City on Monday the 21st of August. While we're there, we'll also be doing a book signing at the Complete Strategist at 11 East 33rd Street. We'll be there between 4.30 and 6pm. If you fancy coming along meeting us, getting anything signed, or just having a chat, uh, we would love to meet you.
2: Now, scarily enough, I've not been replaced by a, uh, by a clone. I've actually invested in some new technology. Scary shit, I know. First time in 10 years I've had to replace a computer. It means that I'm being able to, um, that myself and Scott as well, who's had vastly more of a head start on me in the, on the tech front for a long time, are going to be doing some APs. Got Actual some... play? Yeah. Look at me getting down with the lingo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you are be... down um... with the kids, Mac. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be, um, myself, I'm going to be running Intersections from uh, World War Cthulhu Cold War for the Into the Darkness crowd and scott you're running blackwater creek aren't you
0: yes yeah for the how we roll crew so uh yeah i'm supposed to be recording that with them uh well by the time this goes out i will have recorded it with them so uh keep an eye out on their feet and i'll, I'll mention something about uh,
2: about it when it comes out yeah, yeah my, my own one won't be out for a couple of months because uh, the into the darkness crew are they're, they they're busy players mm. they, have, they have a lot of stuff they need to get through
0: And speaking of actual play recordings, um, for those of you who are patrons on yogzothoth.com, Marty Jopson's been doing quite a good run-through. Well, no, sorry, I'm I'm downplaying that. An excellent run-through of The Two-Headed Serpent, as well as the actual play recordings, which unfortunately are for patrons of yogzothoth.com only. Uh, He has done a few videos as well, which are these Keeper Diaries, where he talks about the process of actually preparing for and running the game. And as he's he's, um, kind of gone further into the camp, Campaign. he's been t- starting to conduct some interviews hasn't he paul
1: he has indeed yeah so he spoke to mike mason uh this week i think that one's up already yes and i had a chat with marty online on friday morning about the bolivia chapter chapter one of two-headed serpent and we discussed that they, they are quite spoiler laden but i think marty is happy with that because they're they're kind of keeper diaries so the intention is i suppose if you're going to be a keeper of the game then, you know, that's something you can uh, listen to and perhaps gain some insights, I don't know.
0: Yeah, and he's planning on doing one of these, I think, with every episode that goes out. Uh, so he's arranged to interview Matt and myself at some stage in the future for when our chapters come up. And, Paul, I understand one of the books that you've worked on recently is out, in, in PDF at least.
1: Yeah, Down Dark Trails by Kevin Ross is out uh, in PDF now. So this is a Wild West for Call of Cthulhu. I did a bit of work on the character creation chapter. Uh, there's work in there by Keith Herber and many others and yeah I mean this is a great setting. I'm, I'm a big fan of the, the kind of cowboy setting and I think this is for not only traditional Call of Cthulhu but also for Pop Cthulhu.
0: Oh yeah, as well as the setting material, does the book contain any scenarios?
1: Yeah the
2: blurb that Chaosium put out about it that I read earlier in the week said there are two scenarios in there as well as there also being two complete towns and environments that you can use to base your um, games in. Oh, neat.
0: Yeah.
1: And now it's time for our regular weekly slot. It's not bloody weekly, though, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Just do the intro, Dawood.
0: Then it is time once again for the Lovecraftian word of the uh, week. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week.
2: This week, our word is inhuman. It's an adjective. One. Lacking sympathy, pity, warmth, compassion, or the like. Cruel, brutal, unfeeling. That seems far too... This is just
1: every one of Scott's player characters.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And most of the NPCs, yeah.
2: Yeah. I was going to say, I thought this was striking a bit too much of a uh, familiar note. Two, not suited for human beings. Three, not human.
0: When I think about Lovecraft's work... I tend to think about the literal use of the word inhuman rather than the figurative one, that that one that we saw defined with that first big definition you gave there, Matt. There, There isn't necessarily a lot of sadism, or at least not human sadism, in his
1: stories. No, the antagonists who are human that are doing evil things, if you like, are they doing some higher purpose, like Old Man Whateley? You know, they're trying to bring a god forth. They're not just about sort of base cruelty to other human beings, really. Yeah. So, probably the closest is because I'm Mason,
2: but even then it's because she does it in service to Azathoth rather than being, hey, I have power, and I'm just going to go out and be a cruel, evil, uh, moustache-twirling villain for no good reason. That they all have motivations. I think what Lovecraft captures,
0: which is possibly even more chilling than sadism, is indifference, that characters like old man waitley and and keziah mason are able to do these things because they just don't care it's not because they enjoy inflicting pain it's because the human suffering just isn't important to them
1: yeah i think he doesn't write about man's inhumanity to man does he i don't think i don't think that's at the core of his work no but we do have inhuman things out there that you know impinge on our world and attack us perhaps
0: yeah, I mean, certainly his monsters are largely inhuman, literally inhuman by definition. Mm-hmm. Though he does a very good job of blurring that line sometimes with, mm. you know, obviously with creatures like Deep Ones and Gauls. Mm-hmm.
1: And on the scoreboard, this one features relatively lowly. So it appears 16 times in Lovecraft's fiction, with three variants of inhumanity and inhumanly.
0: Well, let's take a look at how Lovecraft used the word inhuman in his fiction.
1: From the case of Charles Dexter
2: Ward. Weird and menacing in that abyss of antique blasphemy rang his voice, its accents keyed to a droning sing-song either through the spell of the past and the unknown or through the hellish example of that dull, godless wail from the pits whose inhuman cadences rose and fell
1: rhythmically in the distance through the stench and the darkness. And from At the Mountains of Madness. It must have had a marvellous and mystic beauty, and as I thought of it I almost forgot the clammy sense of sinister oppression with which the city's inhuman age and massiveness and deadness and remoteness and glacial twilight had choked and weighed on my spirit.
0: And finally, from The Dreams and the Witch House. The Beldam's face was alight with inhuman exultation, And the little yellow-toothed morbidity tittered mockingly as it pointed at the heavily sleeping form of Elwood on the other couch
2: across the room. And moving on to the main topic, monster madness.
0: Well, Daniel Carroll posted a little while back on our Google Plus community, suggesting that we take the same approach uh, to monsters as we had to Lovecraftian spells in our earlier Relia Roulette episode. So what this involves is we will basically roll dice, find some random monsters from the Malleus Monstorum, and just see what the hell we can do with them. If you want to go back and see what we did with magic, uh, those episodes, those earlier Rillier Roulette episodes, are number 37 and number 60. So, happy
1: listening. But now, friends, it's time for the dice. And just to give you some idea of our method here,
0: the numbers that we're uh, picking are the page numbers Uh, from the Monstorum, and uh, we're looking particularly at the first 120 pages. So Paul has come up with a cunning scheme here. These are percentiles plus. Instead of a tens die, we have a twelves die.
1: Yes. It's almost like magic, but the first number I came up with is 22 and there's nothing on page 22. (laughs) It's a continuation of something else. Damn it, so we will roll again. 80. Oh, yes. It is the Shantak. Oh. oh
0: okay. Well, I, this is a
1: fairly iconic monster, but let's remind everyone of what precisely a Shantak is. So Shantaks originally come from the dream quest of unknown Kadath, and Lovecraft describes them thus. Not any birds or bats known elsewhere on Earth, for they were larger than elephants and had heads like a horse's. The Shantak bird has scales instead of feathers and those scales are very slippery. So these things can fly through space, they dwell in the dreamlands and the real world. What on earth could we do with these fellas?
0: And they're huge. The way I tend to think of them in um, in Call of Cthulhu terms is as, as flying mounts for unspeakable horrors. Mm-hmm. And... I, I don't know if this is something that's come up um, in any of the scenarios, but you talk about how they exist in both the dreamlands and uh, the waking world. And I just wonder if that implies that like ghouls, they can travel between them. Because, in which case, you know, that's actually a really interesting way to use the mount. That, you know, you can fly in and out of dreams by riding on the back of one of these nightmares.
1: I think that'd be pretty cool. So we have the idea of ghoul tunnels that link the real world to the dreamlands. Yeah, climbing on this big uh, winged mount and flying through the sky into the dreamlands. Well,
0: I, I was thinking of the other way around and, you know, and this is where you can get really weird. We've seen a lot of examples of, of characters passing over into the dreamlands but what happens if someone is there as a dreamer, they, they've gone in through a dream, they get on a Shantak and then are transported, their, their dream self is transported to the waking world. So there's like a comatose version of them or a sleeping version of them somewhere but they are now the embodiment and uh, this dream self that's also now wandering around the waking world.
2: Yeah, or just other denizens of the dreamlands that suddenly find a way into the waking world because they always see dreamers as being almost these heroic, almost godlike figures in their own right. Mm. What if they think that, ah, finally there is a way for me to ascend to the waking world and sort of grab a slice of that power for myself? So it's like a little dreamlands invasion of people or forces that try to start working their way across, um, going the other way through the wall of sleep. Hmm. It's definitely better than riding bikey airways because those sods only take you to the Court of Azathoth and dump you there. Whereas these guys, they go everywhere! (laughs) Cross dimensions!
1: But I get what you're saying, Scott, about the the, the duplicate. It's almost like yeah. a time jump where you come out and there's another version of you. Oh,
2: well,
0: except it's, it's potentially even more sinister than that. I imagine you start off with this as a scenario um, that you, you have a bunch of dreamers who perhaps don't even realise that they're dreaming. Uh, they clamber on board a, bu- a, a, a shantag and are taken to the waking world. And there they realise that oh, they, they sort of not quite wake up, but they sort of start realising bits about where they actually came from in the first place and realise that they have a physical presence here as well. Um, That, uh, you know, they don't necessarily have a way back to the dreamlands now, but at the same time, they're connected via these these comatose sleeping forms that are sort of generating them. What do they do at this stage? Can you... You know, can you actually kind of wake your dreaming self up? If so, what then happens to you? Are you committing suicide, to some respect, by doing that? If you let your sleeping self die, is that going to stop you existing?
2: Yeah, I, I like the idea of them trying to suddenly almost like get their life back. They said, no, you can't wake up. If you do, I disappear. And mm. so, well, yeah, fighting yourself. I think that's quite a nice little take on it.
1: Hmm. It puts me in mind of, like, lucid dreaming as well, that you mm. kind of dream the world real. These people from the dreamlands have, have come into our world, and and it's a real world. But dreamlands is kind of a real world too. Hmm.
0: Yeah. I, it could be also especially interesting if you've got characters who, you know, perhaps aren't the uh, the the tulpas or manifestations of, of dreamers that they are actually native denizens of the dreamlands hmm. and are brought into our world. I mean, you know, we've seen lots of stuff in in. Uh, role-playing games and in lovecraftian fiction about what happens when dreamers end up in the dreamlands but what happens the other way around what happens when dreams end up in our world how do they react to reality what about the fact they can fly through space Mm. that seems pretty awesome well, it does as long as you remember your space mead. I know. Yeah. I was. Oh, mm. you, can, can you imagine? Yeah, just getting someone on the back of one of those, slapping it on the ass, and saying, "Right, fly!" And yeah, it's oh yeah yeah, this is fantastic. But uh, uh, hang on, the air is getting a bit thin. Oh oh.
1: <laughs> mm. So a good draught of space mead equips a person to be able to survive the the terrors of the vacuum of outer space. So they could fly to other planets, but. I don't know how th- these things don't fly that quick, though, that they could fly to like y- even Yogoth, It would still take a hell of a long time.
0: Except, I mean, the description of the Malleus Monstorum talks about how unsuspecting people may end up at the court of Azathoth. So that seems to imply that they can cross huge amounts of space in very little time. I mean, maybe. You know, space doesn't work the same way for them. You know, maybe they're, you know, kind of able to take shortcuts or bend through space, and, and the huge distance between the stars is nothing to them.
1: Or they're just happy to, you know, flap along through space <laughs> for a long time.
2: That's going to be a lot of space mean you need in a resurrection spell, probably. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, how intelligent are Shantaks? Oh, not very. Only 15. So, so they're
0: basically animals,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Their their intelligence is very low.
0: So it's not like they're going to be able to come up with cunning schemes to uh, uh, to fool people. But on the other hand, it means that. They are, I mean, if you are in any way in control of the situation when you get on board one, that they're either going to act on instinct or just follow the the most basic instructions. And again, if you're talking about something that can fly you into space or fly you between worlds, that is a potential recipe for disaster. You know, you are just not in control of this. Mm. Where the hell are you going to end up?
1: I just like the fact that my parrot is probably more intelligent than Shantak. (laughs) I like to think they got one of those baskets on top, like the elephants in Return of the King. Well, like a howder. Like a howder. Is that what it's called? Yeah. A big basket thing. And the whole party could be sat in that. Yeah. Flying through space.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Passing the time together, playing endless games of snap, while you're waiting to go to the court of Asaphos. (laughs) At
2: least there wouldn't be any breeze to make the cards fly. So.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Always look on the bright side, Matt. Yeah, there you go. Is this getting us anywhere nearer to a, a scenario? Um, I think having the
2: idea of your dream self pop out of the, um, the dreamlands mm. on the back of a Shantak and try and reclaim their life, that's a good, a good little scenario.
0: Yeah, and I suppose the other is, I mean, let's say that you either inherit or you end up, through an auction or something like that, getting this mythical item, this, this kind of giant howdah, and you, you, you're just not... Quite sure what it is, and so you're playing around with it, and you know as soon as you get in it, this this shantak materializes underneath it and starts flying.
1: I like to think the whole party goes to the dreamlands, end up on the moon because you do. <laughs> yes, get in some like drunken brawl, then go to a casino, win the howder go outside, sp- you know chase down a, a shantak, wrestle it to the ground. Perhaps it's a pulp game, and uh, they strap that on. <laughs> And then all climb in, you know, jobs are good, and we'll just fly to Earth. But they don't realise that the Earth they're flying to, because, you know, they're not used to handling Shantaks. And they don't go to the Dreamland's Earth, they go to the real Earth.
0: Yeah, yeah, yes. Yep.
1: And on to monster number two. 51. Many legs, 51. <laughs> Titty knot. horse of the invisible. Oh
0: right. yes,
2: yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. From Karnaki, the Ghost Finder, yeah. yeah, and also makes an appearance in some of the uh, John Tynes King in Yellow stories. I'm sure it's in okay. um, appears in Ambrose,
0: yeah. Huh. Well, I remember it from uh, a scenario that I think Marcus L. Rowland wrote for a White Dwarf. It was one of the first Call of Cthulhu scenarios I ever read, way back in the early '80s. And uh, the scenario, I'm pretty sure, was just called The Horse of the Invisible and was uh, pretty much a direct transposition of of the William Hope Hodgson
2: story. Ah, okay. But I remember that definitely is one of the encounters that you can have while playing the Hasta Mythos in Delta Green Countdown. okay. One of the many weird things you can encounter on the streets of Carcosa.
0: Horses of the Invisible come from the story The Horse of the Invisible by William Hope Hodgson, and Hodgson describes them thus. In the instant afterwards, it seemed to me that the whole place shook beneath the ponderous hoof-falls of some huge thing. And then, from a patch of darkness to my left, there burst suddenly an infernal gobbling sort of neighing. He was sure he saw something that looked like an enormous horse's head right upon him in the light of the last flash of his pistol. Immediately afterwards, he was struck a tremendous blow which knocked him down.
1: So what do we have here? Weird, eerie, non-corporeal... Ghost horses.
0: Yeah, I mean, they're described in the Malleus Monstorum as these creatures that can manifest. That They're invisible and intangible normally, uh, but they can take some degree of physical form, uh, at which point they can actually inflict harm upon people. But until then, they're just sort of creepy
1: noises and presences. But they can only manifest at night.
0: Yes.
2: I keep thinking back to an episode of Sapphire and Steel, uh, which is the second story arc, where it was the haunted train station. Oh yes, yeah. Well, you had things like this uh, ghostly sound of like ghost trains passing down the tracks, and people walking uh, walking around the platform and so on. I like to set games in relatively mundane but lesser used settings. I've never done one at a horse track. I'm thinking mm. of, uh, thinking of uh, what happens there after hours with the stable hands that be clearing, uh, clearing the place up or caretakers or people that are starting to set up something like if you're using um, a big racetrack like where wherever the Grand Nationals held on terrible at... Um, is it Aintree?
0: Uh, might be. I, I really well, don't know. Some,
2: anyway, some big place where they hold a big major race that they're taking a long time to set up the the place for the big event the next day or the day after, and then weird shit starts happening. So that they start to hear horses running around the track in the dead of night.
0: Well, especially you know the fact that the horses are drawn by suffering. Uh, according to the description in the Malice Monstorum. So um, I, when you think about you know, the Grand National and other big horse races, there are a lot of horses there that suffer and die, break limbs, end mm-hmm. up having to be put down. And so maybe that is the kind of suffering that perversely attracts a horse of the invisible. Yeah, another take on them sort of occurs to me. Um, I'm not quite sure where I'm going with this yet. But this idea that they're attracted to suffering, I mean, it almost sounds like they, they they might even draw sustenance from it. And I mean, what if you have a character, you know, a, a sorcerer or some kind of dabbler in the mythos who is working with good intentions that maybe he wants to find a way of lessening human suffering I mean maybe it's someone working in a hospital or a hospice or something like that around people who are you know grievously injured sick dying and um or, or possibly even an asylum and there are people suffering all around and you know he is desperately trying to bring these spirits in to make them manifest with the idea that they might devour the suffering that they might actually remove the suffering from the human beings by
2: consuming it like a sponge yeah, yeah or like a sin a concept of a sin eater except yeah. in this case a pain eater
0: or or to go with a a more kind of medieval medical
1: approach leeches just mm emotional psychic leeches. That's a
2: bloody big leech to lay on someone. It is. (laughs) is. And
1: there's a strange thing in the description in the Malleus Monstron where it describes the the horse as manifesting the head and shoulders and forelimbs of the horse, but then the hindquarters trail off into a weird eerie fog. And I I kind of wonder where that fog goes. Mm. Um, I can kind of visualize that snaking off somewhere. So if this wizard is sending this horse to soak up the suffering perhaps you know i don't know maybe soaking up some sort of essence or magic points or something at the same time perhaps Um, then we might track down whether whether the the smoky ethereal tail of this horse is leading to
0: And, yeah, if you do have these creatures that are effectively siphoning off human suffering, and this is all going somewhere else, that it's perhaps going to a dream realm or some kind of psychic realm, which is now just like a huge abscess filled with psychic pus, the psychic pus of human suffering. You know, what happens if you go there? What happens if that ruptures?
2: There's an image I didn't expect to have in my head today. (laughs) Always oh, happy to help, Matt. psychic pus. If it is something quite as disgusting as that, aboth. Yeah,
1: mm.
2: yeah, being the uh, the source of uncleanliness and joyous um, entertainment that he is,
1: yeah. It'd be feeding it to him
2: after that pesky valabar booze didn't really give him anything to uh, give him anything much to eat while he was down there
1: <laughs> and we're getting a sort of a, a, a potential sort of crossover between the real world and a sort of other realm here so this could be the dreamlands as well you know continuing our theme from the Shantax. so this could this could all link up
0: mm. yeah yes that uh yeah that, that you, if you end up kind of following the hind legs of a horse of the invisible through to this horrible realm where it comes from. Maybe your best hope of getting out there is hitching a ride on a friendly shantag. Maybe you are that desperate. Maybe at this stage, you know, getting honest and ending up at the, ho- uh, the court of Azathoth is beginning to look like a pretty attractive proposition in comparison.
1: Time for number three, but dice roll 56. 113. Oh yes! Oh, yes. You mean you've rolled one the first time round without having to re-roll it, <laughs> another dozen, half a dozen times? There's actually something on this page? There is. There are two creatures on this page. We shall roll. Odds or evens.
0: You might want to say this into the microphone. Yeah, I will.
1: Yes, there are two creatures upon this very page. We shall roll. So I'm rolling the D12 again. 1 to 6, the first thing. 7 to 12, the second. 3. It'll be the first one. The <laughs> the The servants. ...of... ...Egolanach! Oh, right! I,
2: I have Gosh. actually used them in a scenario! <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think you're going to have to remind me what those are. I, I remember Egolanach, the... I don't remember the serpents. L- little
2: eyeless babies with mouths in their hands! And then tattered uh, back ends that affect the end around their midsection. It's just uh, kind of entrails t- and tattered flesh uh, going back uh, back out the end. They've got no legs.
0: So, so, we've got another monster here that's only got a top half.
2: Yeah! Yeah, again, this is, what, this is what's at the front end of the Horse of the Invisible. Something's <laughs> got to make up the back end. <laughs> and the servants of Yrgolanak are described in cold print by Ramsay Campbell. And they are described thus. And beyond the wall rises Yrgolanak, To be served by the tattered, eyeless figures of the dark. Long has he slept beyond the wall, And those which crawl over the bricks Scuttle across his body, Never knowing it to be Yrgolanak.
1: So what are these things? The servants of Egolinac? They're they're small, childlike-sized beings, who are blind, but they have heightened sense of smell and hearing. And well, they, they're more than just blind, aren't they? They don't have any eyes. Well, it's just like fleshy sockets. But they do have. In their hands, they have orifices. orifices. And they, they hunt people, or they crawl all over Igolanak and they're waiting for the day when Igolanak will, you know, rise again and party. <laughs> party.
2: <laughs> the rest of the old ones come up and take over the world. This guy just gets down and boogies. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. I. The first thing that occurs to me about them is something that's completely divorced from the whole idea of Igolanak and and his roots in spreading his word through pornography and stuff like that. But, um... <sighs> Just purely from the physical description, I'm just picturing a sort of turn of the century freak show in a travelling carnival, where someone has managed to get hold of some of these, and you know is is exhibiting them like uh, circus geeks or you know it, just as part of the freak show. You know has got this this uh, sawdust filled pit where the, there are these horrible little things just crawling around, and every now and then they throw a chicken in or something like that.
2: Do you know that would have made American Horror Story Freak Show a hell of a lot more watchable? (laughs) Poor chicken, though. Maybe they have a thing about chickens.
0: Well, that was the classic circus geek thing, though, that um, uh, you you had... uh, The the idea of a circus geek was that it was someone, usually someone uh, who had really severe alcohol problems, who would do anything for money and drink. And um, they would just sort of uh, be decked in a a pretty hideous costume and every now and then they get thrown a live chicken and their act was to bite its head off
2: Mm -hmm. yeah that does ring a few bells Mm.
0: Ozzy
1: Osbourne you mean (laughs) yes (laughs) (laughs) I mean the whole baby thing kind of brings to mind you know some sort of body horror with uh, maternity warts and so on I like the circus freak thing
0: well also where do these things come from I mean we know they're crawling all over him Um, they they seem to be attracted to him, even though they don't actually know that they're crawling over him. Well,
1: they're described also in the text as the children of Igolanak.
0: Well, and also, I mean, going going back to the idea that, you know, Igolanak sort of spreads his word by hiding it in pornography. Oh, God. How about if these things are birthed basically through masturbation? Um,
2: OK, that, that is that, not where I was expecting you to go with, that, that, that,
0: that, that <laughs> These are the children of Onan's spilled seeds, that every time someone masturbates over a bit of pornography that has got a Golinax word woven into it, that it births one of these children, that you know, they, 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 yeah, they the tissues that they flush down the toilet or throw in the bin afterwards, that something eventually starts crawling out of them.
2: You have a fucking twisted mind, Orwood,
1: would I? <laughs> <laughs> Me and Matt are just looking at each other now.
2: <laughs> I, honestly, I thought when you were saying that, oh, they're obviously using this, you've got an app riff, and I was expecting you to say something like children's bedtime stories have put a nasty spin on that, but no, you bring out the full-blow wank. What the hell? <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's hard to follow this
2: he just put a little spin on the littlest lovecraft Yeah, bedtime stories I want to see the plush version of this now Uh,
1: anything following that is going to sound somewhat mundane but I was thinking of Cloverfield again you know we've got Cloverfield, one of the good things I liked about Cloverfield was a massive monster, really cool but additionally, cool were all these like little tiny things running around mm. them, like lice. But they were the size of a you know a human that would jump off and were kind of freakish, and they were the, the kind of human scale danger here. And these things sound almost like a parallel to that. They're kind of crawling over eagle and acting like lice. Um, I can imagine him kind of picking them off and you know munching down on a couple occasionally. Oh,
0: and and how about if. Um yeah, there, there was some, I don't know, magical ritual or artefact or whatever that basically sort of imbued someone with the, the essence of a Golanak somehow or at least twinned them with a Golanak or, or, you know, made them into some kind of petty avatar. And they weren't quite aware of this until these things start crawling out of the shadows and they just want to crawl all over you.
1: Ah!
2: Uh-huh. I just, just want to lick you with their many tongues. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like my cats in the morning. <clears throat> I've used them before as almost like a herald of Golanak as well, that as the the barrier between this world and the um, the great wall that imprisons him starts to become thin and that wall starts to uh, slowly fall away brick by brick, that more of these servants start appearing in the area around the investigators. Um, I've used them before where they've crawled out of a, um, of a body, almost a bit like the, um, probably you're thinking of um, giving birth, almost in a kind of... Um, homage slightly to the alien chestburster, mm. uh, crawling out of a corpse. Then one pops out, then another one, and another one. Like the
0: most macabre clown car.
1: Hey, hey. <laughs> and We've had this idea of going between realms in the previous two monsters. I mean, what if these things can kind of... I don't know, where is he, Golunek? He's behind a... Uh, this quote, some paraphrase goes, he's trapped behind
2: a wall beyond a very large void, a void between worlds where, again, it's just a completely separate subterranean realm.
1: So what if these things, these little children of Egonat, can kind of somehow project themselves into our reality? Maybe in the form of one of Scott's cats or a small child or something like that. Or discarded <laughs> tissue.
2: <sighs> There's Scott just grinning in the corner. <laughs> My work here is done.
1: <laughs> can we put this together into some sort of yeah. scenario form now? Um...
2: I honestly do like the bio- kind of biohazard aspect of that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um.
0: Okay. I mean, if we want to have a, a scenario seed (pun intended) uh, that then. comes <laughs> out of this, then uh, I mean, going back to the idea of um, sort of the masturbatory side, um, I, what, what happens if a priest of a gollinac? So plants a bit of pornography that has got um, yeah that, that, that is is tainted with with the essence of a Golanach in a sperm bank, oh God, yeah, in that little room that you go in when you're making your donation mm-hmm. and every single every single offering that you give there is an offering blessed by a Golanach that will become fruitful in his name in
1: in nine months' time. Yes, There'll be lots of these cropping up. When people notice this, though, Scott? Well, nine months later, yes. <laughs> this <laughs> lovely little baby that you've got has got no eyes and mouths in its hands. Three screaming mouths.
0: Yeah, but I, I'm, I'm sure they grow up quick inside and, and yeah. Um, and eat their way out. And it definitely eat their way out. I mean, with three, three sets of sharp teeth.
2: Yeah. I mean, how else would they get out? This scenario has got to be called hand job.
1: Uh, (laughs) can we weave all this together somehow the shantak the horse of the invisible the children of igolanak (sighs) now there's a there's a challenge (laughs) we kind of together the shantaks with the horse of the invisible to some degree
0: okay well um then, if we go with the idea of uh, the horse and the invisible being attracted
2: to somewhere where there's a lot of human suffering, mm. such so as having a servant, if you've got an like act burst out of you, that's pretty painful.
0: Well, I was thinking along the lines of, um, you know, what if you had, um, you know, a special maternity hospital or a clinic where all of this had been done and where, you know, the, the, the patients were, you know, resident during the process, then. Um, he, you could almost have warring factions within there. The one that is use, you know, is trying to manifest these children of a Golanak inside these unwitting wombs, and then another that is perhaps trying to save them uh, by, uh, or at least not save them from their fates, but save them the suffering by bringing a horse of the invisible in there to, to devour their suffering.
1: I guess yeah. I was seeing it more in the community, perhaps. Mm. These things, you know spreading out into the community people giving birth to the things where would they go and what would they do once they're birthed these things do you think
2: try and get back to their daddy
1: they're not very clever but maybe if somebody's going around gathering them up Mm -hmm. after they keep an eye on the place and then goes around and gathers up the infants
2: deserted nursery
0: well, or, or maybe it is some priest of Golanach who is looking to try to free his god mm. and he reckons that if he gets enough of these things together, that they will lead him there because they're drawn to a Golanach mm. and, you know, if you've got a critical mass of them then, yeah, that, that's, that's got to do something in terms of bridging the gap.
1: <laughs> yeah, literally have them holding hands forming a la- forming a bridge across that void. <laughs> Maybe they're the Shantak's favorite nibble. <laughs> oh.
2: hey, Nothing you like a snack. Yeah.
1: <laughs> the good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain
0: free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. Well, it's that time once again when we thank those lovely lovely people who have given us money via Patreon. Uh, this money uh, pays for all our running costs. Uh, it pays for our hosting costs, uh, the bandwidth costs, uh, it's, it's paid for a bit of new equipment recently, which you should hear the benefits of quite soon as we start recording a few new seminars. So yes, thank you very much to each and every one of you who have donated like this, and we have a few new people to thank.
1: First on the list at the $1 level, we have, we only have a first name for this person, but thank you very much to Marcus. Yes, thank you, Marcus. Indeed, thank you very much, Marcus.
2: And also, our thanks go out to David Buswell wibble Thank you very much, David. Yes, thank you, and welcome back, David. Thank you, David. And thank you very
0: much to Randy Partain.
1: Thank you very much, Randy. <laughs> thank you, Randy. And moving up to the $3 level. Thanks to Ian Pootsma. Apologies if I'm not pronouncing your name correctly, Ian, but... Uh, well, I hope I am.
2: <laughs> We're giving it a good go.
1: Yes, thank you very much,
0: and cheers, Ian.
2: Yeah, cheers, Ian. Our next cheers go out to again the backer with just the one uh, the one name, the first name that we've been given. Uh, again, with the caveat. Sorry for pronouncing it wrong, but we'll go with um, Dalpo. So, thank you very much, Dalpo. Cheers. Yes, thank you and cheers,
1: Dalpo. Cheers, Dalpo.
0: Well, now we've come on to the big guns.
2: Yeah, well, guns, weapons, yeah. They, they commit atrocities one way or the other.
0: <laughs> uh, so, for those of you who are blissfully unaware of this, when someone pledges at the $5 level, we thank them in an extra special way.
2: D10, D100 sand loss kind
1: of way.
0: Yeah. Mm. We, we make noises. We...
1: Uh, Sing, Scott. That's the word you're looking for. Sing. Sing.
0: I I really don't think that is the word I'm looking
1: for. That's false advertising. You think? Yes.
0: But, yeah, we we make musical sounds. Um, Exuberant exaltations,
2: Audio torture.
0: Yeah. And then Paul mixes them together into something even more bizarre. And then we we, we kind of just put them out and, and look away and run. Oh, boy. And who's the first one to be treated with this tonight, Scott? And our first set of sung thanks go out to a gentleman who posts on our forums as Kevin Lovecraft, but he has asked us to sing to him with his real name, which is Kevin Lemke. And again, I hope we're that correctly, Kevin. Um, but, uh, well, by the time we've sung it, it probably won't make any difference.
2: <laughs>
1: well, thank you, Kevin.
2: Yeah, thank you, Kevin, and yeah, um, brace yourself. Yeah,
0: thank you, Kevin
2: Kevin
0: Lemke, Kevin Lemke, Kevin Lemke, Kevin Lemke, Kevin Lemke, Kevin Lemke,
1: Kevin Lemke, Kevin Lemke. And this second track goes out to Anthony O'Daly.
2: Uh, thank you very much, Anthony.
0: Oh, yes, thank you, Anthony. We, we we hope it was worth it. Flag, flag, flag. Flag.
1: Now let's move on and take a look at some of the comments and reviews we've received online we've had another itunes review this time from cthulhu Targan himself or herself who knows
0: the good friends present a fun take on horror gaming movies and literature and apply whatever they discuss to gaming and the cthulhu mythos The audio quality improves quite a bit in more recent episodes, perhaps because they no longer record in a potting shed. But even when the audio isn't the best, the content is always excellent. There are gaming podcasts out there that are more famous, but there are none better than the good friends of J.E. Oh, I'm
2: getting all nostalgic about The
0: Shed now. (laughs) But that is a bold, bold assertion. I I feel in no way moved to contradict
1: you. But uh... The fact that there are gaming podcasts out there that are more famous than us, Scott, is that what you're referring to? That's That's
0: obviously the bit of that sentence I was referring to, Paul.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks very much for the review. If anybody else feels inclined to do so, then we greatly appreciate it. And having reviews on iTunes greatly boosts our visibility there and brings us up in the the rankings. So we'd very much appreciate any other reviews.
0: And we've had some feedback on social media about our recent episodes on the Call of Cthulhu. Tor Nielsen contacted us on our Google Plus community uh, to say, one could even imagine a Cthulhu cult starting out with noble intentions. Maybe it is possible to appease these evil gods with ritual sacrifice, debasing themselves and murdering others for the greater good, uh, of buying us more time. They may never even realise that the Old Ones never even knew they existed, and all their necessary cruelty was pointless.
1: The greater
2: good. (laughs) Oh boy! If I had playtest groups that do exactly that,
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these are meant to be the villains, Matt. <laughs> so that basically, what we're saying is the cultists are actually trying to delay the time when the great old ones come back.
0: I, I, so they're, they're acting them, in the
1: in the in the greater good.
0: Yeah, either delay them or ensure that when they come back, that they think kindly of us.
1: Ah, so I guess you could have the the cultists, yes, delaying them, which is good for us. But delaying them for their own ends, because maybe they think they'll also be wiped out when, they, when the old ones come back. So, yeah, so their yeah. purposes aren't ours, but we share the, the common goal of, of trying to delay the old ones returning.
0: And, and if that isn't worth a sacrifice or two, what is?
1: Dear
2: Cthulhu, please step on this house last. We've also been contacted by Tim Verd. Um He adds, I always like to see if we can subvert the racism by recasting the stories. Does Lovecraft specify the race of Wilcox or If they're both black, how does that change the story? I always assume that there were degenerate whites among the sailors in the LA swamps. To be clear, it doesn't excuse the racism.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think if you were casting a film with those people in, you could cast them as being of any race, really. Um, Lovecraft doesn't specify.
0: Yeah, it certainly changes the tone of that scene an awful lot, and
1: I think you know for the better gerald Carla kind of builds on this idea saying lovecraft's work is ours now and we should continue to scare ourselves with his vision if not his prejudices then this is something we've touched on before when you know ask the question about what do you do about lovecraft's racism when it comes to transferring his ideas and works into gaming yeah it's basically there's there's plenty of material there but we don't have to draw on racist aspects of it
0: but i think it's interesting that in fiction more than in gaming at the moment we're seeing a new generation of writers who are sort of reinventing lovecraft to their own ends and uh using his racism and his ideas as a way of talking about race and uh, talking about bigotry in general it's in fact become so prevalent that there are now i think two TV series in pre-production both of which are Lovecraftian but both of which are inspired by books that do exactly this and that's uh, Lovecraft Country and The Ballad of Black Tom um, so yeah it would be interesting to see how this ends up shaping the discussion about Lovecraft
2: and race As a counterpoint to that we did have a comment on Reddit from Sneaker Mail 2 pc for me The racist apologists in Lovecraft discussions are becoming tiresome I never understood why sensitive times read Lovecraft and then complain over the old-fashioned views and lingo instead of just sticking to the safe pandering of modern writing."
0: I'm trying to be charitable here. The implication here, and uh, I apologies, Sneakermail, whoever you are if I'm getting this wrong, but the implication I see here is that somehow Modern writers, by not including all this racism and racial stereotyping that we see in Lovecraft's work itself, are somehow pandering to readers who want something safer who want yeah you know, something that that's been defanged that somehow the implication there at least to me is that yeah you know, the the racism makes this more real uh, makes it i I don't know what more dangerous more exciting more manly and i'm sorry i find that absolutely fucking appalling i'm sure you're a very nice person but this comment i it, it made me genuinely angry
1: To wrap up, let's have a think about our overall thoughts about using monsters in Call of Cthulhu. One thing that occurred to me
0: uh, when I was thinking about this episode ahead of time is that I've spoken to a few other Keepers who talk about when they're starting off writing a scenario, that they will, you know, grab uh, the Malice Monstorium or the Call of Cthulhu Keeper rulebook or or a collection of Lovecraftian fiction and look for inspiration, you know, look for gods and monsters in there that they can use as the kernel of a scenario. And it, it occurred to me that I have only very, very rarely started off thinking about a scenario by thinking, what monster shall I use? I mean, do either of you ever do that?
2: No, um, I more look at the location I want to set the story in first and then think, as the story starts to slowly build in my mind, what would be the most appropriate Lovecraftian entity, whether it be a god or monster, that potentially could fit into that rather than the other way around. I don't necessarily think of, I want to use a Starzborn today! Um, Normally I think about where I'm going to put the monster and if the monster is then applicable to the setting I've chosen.
1: Yeah, I'm very much the same. I think I've come up with a, a story, an idea... sometimes pretty much the whole scenario and then think it kind of needs some explanation some mythos in there you know that might be a monster it might be you know whatever but something in there to sort of tie it into a, a bit more of a call of cthulhu theme the story is sort of formed in some way and then i think oh that kind of story ties in with amigo so i'll put them in
0: yeah, I mean, it's very, very rare for me to actually use a, a monster out of uh, out of canon. I, I, I usually just make shit up. Uh, I, I do every now and then. Um, I mean, there are certain monsters which I keep finding myself drawn back to. And I suppose, you know, in the cases of those, I mean, you know, particularly with things like Deep Ones and Ghouls, you know, I quite often think, oh, you know, th- this is a way I want to approach a scenario about one of those creatures. But on the whole... Yeah, no, it, it would almost never even occur to me to flick through the Malleus Monstorum, pick a monster and think, right, what can I do with that? And it's been a really interesting exercise hmm. today doing that.
2: Uh, yeah, it's, it's different, because like I say, it's just something we don't normally do.
0: And just to be absolutely clear here, I'm not saying that, you know, I, I think it's a bad idea to start off with a monster. I think that's a great way of, of looking at a scenario. It's just not one that ever really occurs to me.
2: Hmm. Might have to try it again sometime.
0: Hmm. Or not, given what happened. And thank you once again to Daniel Carroll for suggesting this. And uh, Daniel does, coincidentally, uh, do a blog all about Lovecraftian monsters, where he is working his way through... In fact, I believe he's now finished with all Mm. the actual monsters. All done. Um, All the monsters in the Malleus Monstorum. Uh, So the blog is called Brawl of Cthulhu, and we will link to it from the show notes.
1: That's a lot of monsters. hmm well, that's it for today. So it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me.
2: Hello.
0: Blasphemous-tomes.com.